Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Speaking of my family, uh, on Friday I went to men's camp and uh, I, I thought with a, with a heavily pregnant wife who's got a feisty toddler with her and, and a whole lot going on there, I thought I'd make sure I'd leave them in good hands. So I took them to uh, her mother-in-law and sister-in-law for dinner on the Friday afternoon and I made sure everything was organized at home so the week could, weekend would be easy for them. You know, I'm just working for good husband points, you know, um, and, and, and I had everything ready. And as we went to my mother-in-law's house to drop them there, um, I got everything ready and as I, as I did that, I, I remember putting the keys down for her. That I took the spare keys in my bag, so if something went wrong, I'd have some spare keys. I put the house keys and the car keys down for her, told them where they were. And then uh, my lift arrived. And in the excitement to go and get in the car with him, I picked up said house keys and car keys and jumped in the car. Unbeknownst to me or the family, and a two-hour journey went by, and then for two hours we, uh, we drove. And about 7 o'clock, uh, I, the guy I was driving with suddenly said to me, your, your wife is phoning me. At that moment, I looked at him quite perplexed. I looked down on my phone, and I see a whole host of missed calls from my wife. First thought, things, pregnant. Yeah, not just pregnant, uh, baby's coming. Uh, uh, it has taken me 36 weeks to realize she's pregnant. Um, no, I thought, here we go, it's, t- it's go time, here we go. And at that moment, though, I, I, was, I was a bit panicky and nervous. What are all these missed calls? Why would she be phoning? Why would she phone him? I answer the phone, and she says in a very calm voice, where are the house keys? And I said to her calmly, in front of me. And uh, it was at that moment I had to realize we had to make a, a quick plan and make a quick arrangement. And uh, thank goodness, first, the first point of that story is thank goodness for a gracious wife, very kind. She was very forgiving and very loving, and I haven't had to come groveling yet, I should say. No, no, she's very kind, um, and we're able to make a plan. But, but it got me thinking as well that so often I think maybe you've been in a situation like that. You, you've left your phone for a while and you, you come to and you see there's a host of messages or a host of missed calls that you haven't been able to pick up and your, your brain starts thinking, what have I missed? What's, what is there trouble? Is, have I missed an opportunity? What's happened? And I think sometimes we can translate that type of thinking onto our relationship with God. We can translate that thinking onto our relationship with, uh, as we walk with Jesus into this, this understanding of something called the call of God. I don't know if you've heard the word, the call of God, before. It's like in Christian circles, it's this mythical, elusive, uh, mystical almost beast that that is for a select few. And we're not too sure what to do with it. The call of God is on your life. You're like, what do do we do with that? How do I walk into it? What does that mean? And so often I think we think about it when somebody says, hey, the call of God is on your life. Or we talk about the call of God. We often will think, yeah, but I think I might have missed it. I think I might have missed that call. Maybe because circumstances of life, somebody said this weekend, quite, quite hauntingly, said, actually, I look back at the last little while of my life, and I realize my life is quite disappointing. And maybe, I don't think it's too far removed from maybe many of our stories. Maybe your relationship that you thought would pan out a certain way hasn't really panned out that way. You're a bit disappointed. Your, your finances seem like you're in the same job that you've been doing and the same salary, and things haven't really increased. What's happened? Or, or maybe you've made promises to God that things will change and things didn't change, and you're a little bit disappointed or devastated by a situation that's hijacked or seemingly hijacked your future, maybe hijacked the call of God in your life. I'm here today to tell you from the get-go that God does not deal with missed calls. He doesn't deal with missed calls. What do I mean by that? I have this facility, I'm sure you do on your phone as well, that if I'm on a call and somebody's trying to get hold of me, it starts to beep incessantly. And as I look down, it'll say, often say, call waiting. 
Today I want to tell you that God doesn't deal with missed calls. The title of my sermon is Call Waiting. He's waiting. He's pursuing. His call is not dead on your life. He's still calling no matter how far you've run, no matter where you've been. His call remains on your life. I want to help prove it this morning and encourage us in that journey. So we're going to read a, a, a scripture together, Genesis 22, verse 1 to 14. It's on the screen behind me. I, in my haste to leave Milton, I left my Bible there. So I'll be reading with, from said screen as well. First one says this, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abram got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abram told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We'll worship there and then we'll come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abram built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abram picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abram replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, the people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's pray in this moment. Father, I I thank you for the next few minutes as we lean in together to this conversation around the call of God. I thank you, Father God, today would you pour courage into every single heart. Hearts that feel beaten up, hearts that feel disappointed, dropped, let down, frustrated, angry, dejected, sinful. I pray into every single heart would you pour your courage in for the journey that you've got ahead for us. Father, again, while I'm praying, I ask would you help Liverpool win the Premier League. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm praying really hard these days. Lovely to see you all three points very quickly this morning from this text and the narrative of Abraham's life about the call of God that I think will be helpful building blocks for you and I as we navigate what does the call of God look like on our life. I see that Manchester United shirt, by the way. I see it. I see there's a good one just behind you, Bunty. But anyway. But I want to help us with the call of God, three building blocks that you can put and superimpose on your journey. Say, God, would you reshape and refashion what you've got for me? Number one from this text in his life is the call of God. God's call is never small. God's call is never small. Let's skip back 10 chapters to where we first meet this man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And who is this character? Who is this man, this, this, this incredible man who will become the father of our faith? 
Well, let me tell you a little bit about his, his family. His dad's name was Tara, and his dad, for business, was in the business of idol manufacturing. So he made idols for other religions. His dad, in our present day, would be stocking the shelves of Macro with your garden variety idols. Idols, you want that religion? He's got them stocked. You got them? You got them in his garage. Come around. He'll make a deal with you. His dad made idols for other religions. So much so that I can imagine when Abraham would have heard the voice of God for the first time, he probably would have run to his dad and said, Dad, God spoke to me. To which his dad probably would have replied, which one? That's the spiritual pedigree, the background, the, the religious background of his family. What's more, Abraham himself, the scriptures tell us, the way of his worship before he encounters the living God was he was a sun worshiper. He took his existence off the sun, the moon, the stars, and that's how he would chart his courses and he would live his life much like many people these days do by flicking to the back of the U magazine, looking for their birth date, saying, Gemini, oh, I'm going to have a good week. That's the, probably the height of his religiosity. Carry on, we find Abraham, this man, the father of our faith, was also a notorious man for pimping out his own wife. Yep, that's the father of faith. He was so scared of her beauty and striking beauty in foreign lands that he would often lie and say, she's not my wife, she's my sister, so that he could use her to curry favor with foreign kings. Yeah, you're welcome, the father of our faith. What's even more was the Bible tells us that this man was not a young strapping lad who was full of passion and vitality and ready for whatever the future had for him. No, the Bible tells us that he was very old, very old. His wife, the Bible describes in the book of Romans, was as good as dead. Not very flattering, not a good pickup line. Let me just suggest that. doesn't work often. But this is the state of the hero, the father of our faith. Abraham was an old man. And what's more, he was an old man who had no lineage, no children of his own. And for us, that was, in, in our culture, that's, that's not a big deal. He obviously prioritized his career. No, no, that wasn't the story for Abraham. In that society, for you not to have fruitfulness from your marriage, if you did not have children, lineage from your marriage, it was to say that basically your marriage was almost like a sham. Or even harsher still to say that it was under the curse of God because it wasn't able to provide fruit. So this man was probably sitting there with his, his background, his father's background, with his background, what he did worshiping foreign gods, pimping out his wife, no ability to have children. This is a man in every single area should have been disqualified. And yet God meets him in chapter 12 in the first verse that he says, God doesn't greet him and says, Abraham, let's talk about this pimping of your wife situation. It's not the first thing that in my Bible as I read it. The first thing God says to him, no, Abraham, let's deal with that generational curse up with your father. Nope, that's not what he says either. The first thing we find that God says to Abraham is this, Abraham, I want to bless you and I want to make you famous. And he wasn't meaning just Kardashian famous, really famous. He says, I want to bless you. And not only that, I want to make you a blessing to all the nations. In chapter 15, he extends the call of God and the blessing of God over his life. He says to Abraham, Abraham, look up at the sky and count the number of stars. He says, I can't. He says, count the number of grains of sand on the seashore. He says, I can't. He says, exactly. I want to give you lineage. I want to give you generations. I want to give you children, sons that amount to more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. God's call is never small. It's never determined by where he's been and what he's done, the pedigree of his family. The God's call explodes into life on a man who should have been disqualified from the beginning. This is the start of the father of our faith. And I want to say at this junction, you are never written off by God. 
I don't know what state you came to church this morning, but you are never written off by God. He never writes you off. I have to remind my heart again and again, my fickle heart that always wants to tend to smallness and insecurity, that I'm never written off by God. You say, you don't know what I've done, Gabe. You don't know where I've been. I'll say you have not written off yet. It's not missed calls. It's called waiting, sir, man. Let me tell you a little bit about my story because as I understand this narrative, I realize this is not just some biblical narrative. This is my story because shame and fear keep us in a small, isolated space. Shame and fear will keep us small in this existence and it will help us project that on a relation with God that actually God is most concerned with this smallness existence that I've got. When I was 15 or 16, I've told this story many, many times, but when I was 15 and 16, I was living in Durban and I was an insecure emotionally distraught teenager who'd moved from Zimbabwe, we had no friends, and this was a perfect cocktail for me to fall into the grips of pornography addiction. And this became the, the, very, the very brokenness of my heart, so, so much so that my spiritual journey with God was, was limited to this type of prayer life. God, I'm sorry. God, please help me. Next week, God, I'm sorry. God, please help me. And that's what religion will do, and, and their response will keep us in a small space, just nursing and rehearsing our failures again and again, and just trying to make promises that we're never going to keep ourselves anyway, and just nursing that. And we think the call of God is limited by that. But I want to tell you again and again, the call of God is never small. So much so that I was in, the, in 16 Larch Road, four woodlands, the flat on the top right, if you ever want to come looking, in Durban. One day as a young teenager, and my mom came to me in the midst of my depravity and brokenness and my insecurity. My mom came to me, and she told me a profound and yet bizarre story. She told me a story. She started to say, I think I must tell you a story of a friend of hers who had got married. And such joy had filled their hearts. But on honeymoon, the unthinkable happened. His new bride died on honeymoon. And I don't know if you can think of a tragedy, but for me, that's one of, one of the greatest tragedies, a, a lifetime of promise, of, of dreams, of expectations, of what it could look like, cut short at the very beginning. And in his brokenness at the funeral for his wife, he, he said, I want an open casket, and I want her to be dressed in a wedding dress. I want the, her greatest moment to be our moment to remember. And, and the moment, the, the, the funeral was a somber affair, full of much depression and brokenness and sadness, a deep, deep sorrow. And my mom said that the, the moment reaches crescendo where, where this man was so broken in his, in, his, in his sadness, he actually threw off protocol and ran and leapt inside the coffin of his dead wife, beating her chest, saying, why, God, why, please, God, please, God. My mom stopped the story there, at which point I started to weep and weep and weep. And my mom was a bit confused, because, but what was happening in that moment I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've never heard a big sign in the sky. But I, for the first time, felt my heart warm with God saying, I've got something bigger for you. In that moment, I felt God say to me, he said, Gabe, that's your story. I was like, what do you mean? He says, actually, I'm going to use you to, to get into the dead spaces of people's lives and call them awake. He said, my bride is dead and dying in religiosity. She is dressed up, looking beautiful on the outside, but there's no life flowing in your veins. I want to use you to bring life to my bride, to my church. And from that moment, for me, my conversation was pornography addiction. God said, no, the conversation is much different with me. I've got a big call for you. But we so often use the voice of the enemy to disqualify us what the voice of God is calling us to. The voice of God is never small. It calls you to bigness, sir, ma'am. And this is my story. I believe it's your story. And that God is not, his call is not a respect of persons, not a respect of man's opinion. It's not a respect of past on who thinks you can't or shouldn't. It's never limited. It's never minimized. It's never small. 
But here's the disclaimer. It's sometimes disguised as small. What do I mean by that? We're sitting here and a lot of us are going, God, just give me a sign. Give me a moment like that. God, let the Mavericks plane today as it drives past, let it flatten the wind and may a new message appear on it for me. And then I'll give you my life. Can I tell you something, man? God's call is never small, but sometimes disguise is small. It's where you're at right now. He's not waiting for your circumstance to change. He's not waiting to give you a big sign in the sky. He's saying right now, you're wanting a word? Here's your word. You're called. He's calling you out of your mess into a bigger story. Let me move on. God's call is never small. Secondly, God's call is always to more. It's always to more. You see, we find this mir- the miracle of miracles happening. Abraham, who is old in years, his wife who is as good as dead, they have a son named Isaac. It's a miracle. But God said, I'm going to not just give you one son. He said, I'm going to give you many nations. I want to bless you, but make you a blessing to the nations. There's as more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the, on the shore. He says, I want to bless you. But what happens in Abraham is what happens to all of our hearts. As he gets the son, his hands close on the blessing. And Abraham realizes, actually, this story is done. This is it. I've got my son. That's all I need. I'm happy. And we find Genesis 21, the last verse before it kicks into Genesis 22, the narrative we read. Genesis 21, the last verse finds Abraham in a foreign land, land making treaties with foreign enemy kings. A man who was called out of that existence and was moving to where God had him, he gets his son and he settles in enemy territory. Now, as I read this, I realized this is not the first time this happens, and this is only page 30 in the Bible. Flick a few pages back, Genesis 11, the last verse of that chapter before Genesis 12 starts, we find Abraham's father mentioned Terah. It says that he set out for Canaan. It says Abraham's father set out for where God called him. But it says, but he stopped halfway in a land called Ur. I think that's what a lot of us do. Uh, I don't know where to go. He stopped in a land called Ur. Even though he was called to go to Canaan, it says he stopped there, he settled there, and he died there. So I look at Abraham and I go, like father, like son. They set off where God had called them, but they stopped halfway and they settled. But here's the amazing thing, that God, God is, again, not a respecter. He doesn't, your call is not determined on what your mom and dad did. I woke up this morning with a burning conviction to rip that out of our hearts. I think so many of us have allowed our lineage to disqualify us of a future. We've allowed what our dad did or didn't do to us to disqualify our intimacy and relationships. We've allowed the trauma of our past to determine what, what actually, I'm going to be a victim my whole life because you don't know what happened to me by them. I'm not here to make light of what happened, sir, man, but I want to tell you that the Bible clearly tells me that we were not born of father's will or husband's decision. We were born of spirit. We were born again by God's will, by God's decision. He, in that moment, he unplugged you from that biological nature, and he's plugged your story into a different source. Your future is not determined by the hands of man that have preceded you. Your story is determined by the voice of God, and his call is never small, and it's always to more. You see, uh, there's, there's a story that, that leaps out of the text for me, and it's a, in Mark chapter 5. It's a great narrative. We find this man, Jesus Christ, and, uh, and there's a moment where a man named Jairus comes and finds him and says, Jesus, please come. Please come. My, my, my daughter's dying. I need you to come. And Jesus says, I'm on my way. And on the way there, though, he gets delayed because a crowd press around him, and another woman with an issue of blood comes and reaches, and it's this dramatic story where Jesus heals her and ministers to the crowd. And as that story's finishing, he's moving on his way back to go to Jairus' house. Word comes from Jairus' house saying, don't bother, she's died. 
It's too late. You've missed that one, Jesus. Jesus says, no, I haven't missed it. I don't deal in missed calls. And Jesus keeps walking. He gets there, and he arrives at the scene where the daughter is laid prostrate. She's dead, and, uh, and the house is filled with mourners. Realists are weeping, and it's the tragedy. And Jesus walks in, and he says this bizarre statement. He says, quiet and down. She's not dead. She's sleeping. To which they, re- they respond with mirth, laughter, pain. I can imagine a mix with their pain and a bit of angry. How dare you come here as an outsider and say something like that? We're trying to mourn here. But Jesus says, no, no, no. She's not dead till I say she's dead. I'm the one who determines life and death here. And he says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. I want to remind you again, the call of God is never dead. It's never dead. First thing I want to tell you, it's never dead in your life. Because Jesus, how do I know? He ruins every funeral he attends in the New Testament. Every funeral he attends. If you're wanting a nice ordered funeral, don't invite Jesus. In the, old, in the New Testament, he arrives there. They're going, cool, we've got a couple of eulogies. We're going to pray, uh, play a montage with some Josh Groban, you raise me up. And then we're going to have some cucumber sandwiches outside. <laughs> Jesus ruined that every time by raising the person to life. The order of events was messed up. Why? Because Jesus, nothing is dead until he says it's dead. Let me say it this way, no more simpler. We don't have a faith of morals or uh, the centerpiece of our faith is not some moralistic deity. The centerpiece of our faith is not a mountaintop experience when all will be revealed. No, the centerpiece of our faith is we have a Savior who died and then rose again. The crux of Christianity is He's not come to make you a little bit better than you once were. Just a little bit better. Just a little bit better. No, His call is never small because He came to make dead people alive. That's what Jesus does, and that's his specialty, and he's not gone out of business yet. It's dead in my life. But the incredible story then, Mark 5, doesn't find its culmination there. These people start laughing, and Jesus does something very politically incorrect. The mourners, the people who are crying, the people now laughing, Jesus, what are you saying? How dare you say that? Jesus does an amazing thing. He says to them, get out. He tells these people who are mourning and weeping, and are saying, how dare you say that thing? She's just sleeping. He says, actually, out the room. Out the room then. It's my time to do my business. Thank you. Out the room. Shuts the door and he, Jesus is left with the girl. As I read that, I, I, I realized in my own life and maybe for your own life, I want to say, what are we letting into the rooms of our lives that should not be there? The voices of man that are disqualifying us of our future. The opinions of man that are <laughs> not you. The things that we're, that we're allowing and no, no, but I know what you did. You'll always be defined that way. Those voices, Jesus just pushes them out. He says, no, 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 no. You won't define the story anymore. I, I, I love this thing because actually I think so often we get caught up going, oh, I'm, feeling, I'm in an anxious space, that's where I am, I'm, I'm struggling with anxiety, let me just pray, pray God, I want your peace to come, and, and we're expecting God to come with a light and fluffy peace that's just going to come and say the right thing and cover our anxiety for a while. When Jesus says, no, no, the peace I give you is not the world gives you, it's not light and fluffy, it's a peace that comes at war against your anxiety, and if you want the peace that I give you, you've got to let go of your anxiety. I'm not going to just cover it for a while. So I want to replace it. Can I tell you, anxiety and peace don't coexist. Fear and faith don't coexist. I want faith, but I'm not going to give up this one fear. No, bring it to Jesus sometime, let him push it out the room. Compromise and conviction don't coexist. You can't, I'm going to be sad for Jesus, but I'm going to compromise on the side. No, give me that compromise. Get it out the room. What have you allowed into your room that God's saying, actually, it's time to move forward? This is, this is the simplicity of the gospel here today. But I think so often we get caught up in our anxiety, our fear, our compromise, the opinion of man. And those things will keep us nursing and rehearsing our rejection and our brokenness and our past. And we'll do that till the day we die when actually, with one word, this is Jesus' pastoral strategy in that moment of death. He says, get out. And some of us are allowing them, and no, just, it's okay. Just, no, 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 get out. 
it's time for something else to change. Because he always calls us to more. Finally, this morning, God's call is never small. It's always to more. It's always to leave what was before. We get to 22, chapter 22, the passage we just read at the beginning. And, I, and as we read it, maybe the first time we read it or many times we read it, every time I read those first few lines, the horror of the call hits me. Maybe just now I'm a dad. God says to Abraham, Abraham, that son, sacrifice him. It's, it's quite horrifying. I don't know about you. Maybe you've just, you've been in church way too long. You're like, yeah, oh, I understand. what. No, no it's horrifying. But I want to tell you, it's one of the most compelling stories in the Jewish faith that still is retold and re-examined because of the beauty and the weight of it. The beauty and the horror colliding in one story. You see, the thing is, if we come to it and we have the sense that God was after Abraham's son, then we have a very tough narrative to make sense of. We've got a very tough God to understand here. But if we realize that actually God wasn't after what was in Abraham's hands, he was actually after Abraham's heart, we have a very different perspective. You see, uh, let's get down to brass tacks right here. I've heard many people in my own heart disqualify myself at times, saying things like this. I want to go all in for Jesus. I want to be radical for him. I, I, I'm in for Jesus. It just doesn't mean I have to give up these friends. Well, I'll say these things. Uh, you know, I, I'm all in for Jesus, but do I have to give up that habit? I'm all in for Jesus, but do I have to give up this way of life? Do I have to give up that relationship? Do I really, I mean, I know it's not great, but do I have to do that? I want to, as kindly as I can, say, if you are asking that question, sir, ma'am, I can't help you yet. Because actually the question should never be, what is this going to cost me? I want to rephrase and say, what will it cost you if you don't? Abraham, what is it going to cost you? The call of God is never small. I promised you not just one son. I promised you nations. I promised you lineage. I promised you more than you could ever dream of marriage. But you're settling to one. Hold on to that one. Hold on, hold on, and, and hold on, clutch it. Because why? It's huge. We have to understand the firstborn is massive. This is massive for Abraham. This is not a small thing because when the call of God first reached him in chapter 12, he had nothing to lose. Chapter 22, he's got everything to lose. This is where the rubber hits the road. And this we have to understand the law of primogeniture. It's, it's understanding the firstborn reality in, in, in that culture is that your firstborn son, no matter how many other sons you have, he was your everything. That was the family's future. The inheritance would be given that way. Everything would be given to that firstborn son. So for Abraham, even for in his logical brain to make sense of the call of God saying, for my family to have future, I've got to protect Isaac. I've got to protect Isaac. And now you're calling me to give up the one thing that I've been thinking is linking my future. God said, no, Isaac's not bringing your future. I am. And many of us hold on to that economic sense. If I just keep hold of this thing, if I, if I, if I lose this relationship, I, then I, who, who am I? And we hold on to identities that are not of God. God says, no, I determine your future, not that thing. Will you lay it down? Trust me. This gets really, really real because history tells us and experience tells us that for us to experience is more, we must leave the much of our own hands. For to experience the more of His making, we have to let go of the, hand, the much of our making. Now, I read the story in, in, the, in the Bible about Jesus again and again. I'm just confronted by Jesus, and it's quite profound. Jesus has this moment, a couple of moments, where, where the crowds are flocking to hear Him speak. 
crowds are pressing in and they're so excited. Jesus want to hear what Jesus got to say. They're just so pumped. And I can imagine if I was in Jesus' entourage at that time and the crowd started to come and like, oh, Jesus, now we're hitting the big time now. Look at the crowds. None of the other guys are getting that. None of the other rabbis are getting crowds as big as you. Nice, Jesus. And, and you know, if I was one of them, I would say to him, okay, Jesus, this is a massive crowd today. No pressure. I know you haven't prepped because we've been hanging out all morning. But what I would do now, Jesus, is why don't we do one of the water to wine thing? It works. The walking water gets the crowd going. Let's do that. Impress the people. Go big. And Jesus is like, I've got this. Okay. As I read the text, this is how Jesus speaks to the crowd on this one occasion. He says, uh, you know, come on, Jesus. Just give him something inspirational. Give him something to Instagram, a tweet. I was with Jesus. Yay, smiling. Hashtag it out, yeah. No, but Jesus gets up and says this. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. Now, for us who's been in church or been Christianity for a while, we're like, oh, that makes sense. No, Jesus hadn't died yet. They still have no clue that a, the, their rabbi is going to be crucified as a criminal. They have no concept of the cross. So he is basically saying, take up the cross. He's basically somebody gets up and says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up the electric chair daily. It's like, what the heck? Confusion. They're like, cult leader. It's like, I can imagine. It would have been awkward. Jesus is not swayed by this. I would have been like, oh, what's going on? Jesus then goes and says, if you don't hate your mother and father in comparison to me, you cannot follow me. Like, wow. So let's bring it to our context. Imagine now this morning, you heard word on social media that actually Gabe, Mark, those guys, they're not preaching this morning. Jesus has phoned and said, guys, I would love to come preach at your church. I'm available. My schedule's opened up. I want to come preach in the flesh. We were like, no ways. The parking is insane out there. People are like, Jesus is out here. Jesus is at our church today. And Jesus is there at the front. And we even got a cool in- montage intro for him. Jesus, son of God, crucified three days. But uh, yeah, boom, boom, boom. It's like, Jesus. Yeah. And everyone's like, we're like, guys, we're so excited. We've got a gift this morning. We've got the son of God, Jesus. Give it up for me. Everyone's like, yeah. Screaming, so pumped. Got notebooks ready. Oh, what is he going to say? This profound. He gets up. Morning, everyone. Morning. I just want to start off. How many of you hate your mother and father? You're like, what? What's he saying? Start with a joke, Jesus. Start with a joke. Low and slow. He goes, all right, point two. Pick up your electric chair and come follow me. Everyone's like, what is he saying? What's he trying to say here? I don't understand. And you go, none of you? Cool, thanks for having me. Bye. What I would do in my natural self, I'll get up, guys. Guys, I'm so sorry. I want to just apologize for Jesus. I think he's having a bad day. <laughs> Next week, Mark will be back. He, 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 he's got good jokes. He cries a little bit sometimes. It's really inspirational. Sorry, I'm really sorry about Jesus. I, I, unfortunately, though, I want to say this morning, I cannot apologize for Jesus. I wish I could feather him up. I wish I could make Jesus' call on you to be nice and palatable and easy. But Jesus' call is never dead but it's always demanded. I wish I could give you a cheap way. I wish I could give you this way that actually this thing is so, just, just do these three steps and it'll be easy. But actually what we find in the scriptures is in something completely different. I say it again and again, radical futures demand radical obedience. Radical futures demand radical obedience. Mark Sayers, a, a, a man in Australia, they've got one good guy there. He, he's a preacher, and he says this amazing thing. If you're from Australia, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Jokes aside, he says this one quote. He said, we are offered the mirage that we can have community without commitment. 
that we can have faith without discipleship, and we can have the kingdom without the king. And I think Western Christianity has been sold a lie. Where we leave most sermons going, God's call is never small. True. And we go, yeah, it's awesome. But it holds no power unless we understand that it always demands us to leave what came before. That's where the power comes in. Why? Why is the story so compelling? Why is it so powerful? Uh, I want to tell you this incredible understanding for us is that this story does not end with Abraham having to go and sacrifice his son. The profound understanding of the story, as we know, as we read earlier, is as he's about to kill his son, the voice of God speaks and says, Abraham, stop. I provided a ram in the thicket. So he takes his son off and he goes and he sacrifices a ram in its place. The amazing power why this story has captivated generations upon generations is that it's not the climax in itself. That story is pointing to a greater story. That mountain, theologians tell us that Abraham walked up with his son to kill his son was the same mountain Jesus walked up many years later to go and be crucified. Can I tell you, just like Isaac carried his own wood on his back up that hill, Jesus himself would carry out his own word, the cross, up that hill years later. Just as Isaac went willingly and submitted to the will of his father, so too did Jesus go willingly and submit to the will of the father. The many sons, can I tell you the amazing, the promise of that I will give you many sons was linked to his ability to let go of the one son. It is the same with Jesus. Only the reason you and I have breath that we get to be called sons and daughters of God is because the one son was sacrificed. This is the power of the story, is that actually the amazing story lands by saying, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Provided. Yes, there's a demand, but he says, I don't demand, which I don't supply. He's the one who calls us, and he says, it's the call of God, not the call of Gabe. If you hear it, you don't have to sustain it, you just have to obey it and trust me. The call of God is never small, it's always to more, but it always demands us to leave what came before. I want to tell you this morning, as I land... God is not after your hands, he's after your heart. And he's jealous. He's calling. It's not called, miscalled, miscalls here, miscalls there. Oh, you've missed it. I tell you, it's call waiting. He's patiently waiting. He's patiently pursuing. He says, sir, man, will you answer today? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel dropped by life. You feel dropped by a spouse. You feel hard done by. You feel dropped by your health. You feel dropped by, by your boss. You feel that the promises were made, things are, and I, I should be so much further in my life, but if only they had, if, if that had changed, if this thing hadn't worked out, if, this, if I'd only done that at that moment, I want to tell you today, those stories are told to die. And as Jesus said, get out, the next words he says to that little girl who lay dead, he said, Talitha Kuhum, little girl, get up. Jesus doesn't give a deep teaching on, on, on healing there. He doesn't go try and work out how to do it. He just says two words. He says to those guys, get out. He says to her, get up. I want to tell you this is as politely, as encouraging I can say to you in my own fickle heart that forgets this so often. His call is never small. It's always to more. But it will demand your everything so you leave what came before. I pray this morning that we make decisions. We're going to come and have communion together. I believe maybe you're here today and you feel you've missed it. I've missed opportunities. I've missed moments. What, what good will come from my life? Maybe you're here and you feel you've settled. Can I tell you what will get us to walk into the call of God is not inspirational preaching. It's not rah-rah. It's not the promises to try harder. It's coming and dying with Jesus. Can I tell you why this story is both horrific and beautiful? Because horrific, somebody was going to die. Beautiful because many people get to live. It's the same thing at the centerpiece of our faith. Good Friday when Jesus died was both horrific. Why? 
because our sins crucified him. And yet it's beautiful because it's that death that leads to our life. And actually, the Bible says you cannot live unless you die. And I want to invite you today, as you come to this table, the tables are back, get the emblems, hold them and say, Jesus, speak your words again into my heart. I believe Jesus is here and he's saying, get out to the naysayers. He's saying, get out to opinions of man. He's saying, get out to words of the past. He's saying, get out to what your fathers and your forefathers did. And he's saying, actually, he's saying there's a new story. Get up. I believe the call of God is going out. Will you answer today, sir, ma'am? Will you answer today for your life, for your family's life, no matter where you are? Will you say yes to Jesus again? If you've settled, say, Jesus, would you move me forward?